what pops up a beer or a cold libation Let me tell you how I wrote this little theme I went and took a call from brother Jason And he tells me that he has a little dream He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast And I ask him what you got He said I'll start off with some talking And some moody clips of popcorn fighting Fantasy explorations and some groundness exploitation Kickstarts that I'm watching and some blind unboxing Full month horror movie marathon Sometimes I'll let the dogs come on Contest and of course you know it's all about games I said slow down let's just start with the name It's the Nerds RPG Variety Podcast With the other Jason Welcome back Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I'm here Jason. Today I've got a gaming recap. I give you some podcast recommendations for interesting conversations. Actually in this case podcast recommendations to Put an end cap on the Rule Zero discussion. Uh, I talk a little bit. I no spoilers at all. I just address the general controversy. I don't even know if that's the right word around Masters Universe Revelation. Notice He Man is not in the title. Um, talk about the Batman for a minute, and I do a pretty fun unboxing, and then we get into some calls. So let's get into the show. Gaming recap, Bone Crunch, now astonishing swordsmen and sorcerers of Hyperborea. So, Arlen Walker was running a homebrew system called Bone Crunch, or he was going to run a homebrew system called Bone Crunch, for Che Webster of Roleplay Rescue, Carl Rodriguez, uh, the Geomologist Presents, Darren Green, who you've heard on multiple podcasts, and another player who I don't believe has any podcast, but and, and myself, and we were going to use this system as a deep world exploration long-term game. But for various reasons, Ireland decided that Bone Crunch wasn't re- quite ready for prime time, and we switched over to Ash, and we're using um, the second edition rules, potentially when the third edition rules now shorten just a Hyperborea come out, we may switch over to the third edition rules, but for right now we're using second edition rules. And anybody that hasn't played that game, really it's it, it's kind of BX with some extra AD&D-isms bolted onto it, so it's kind of between BX and AD&D, a little bit more towards the AD&D side as far as complexity goes, and it's catered specifically towards like sword and sorcery games. Lots of subclasses. Um, lots of combat rules, additional combat maneuvers, things like that. R- really fun system. I, I really like this game. I played before, well, with a couple people, mainly in, when Carl Rodriguez was running game, which was a lot of fun. And then we had, I had some scheduling issues that kept me out of that game. But hopefully we'll, we'll get to move on with this. So we effectively just remade our characters in the new system. And so we have... A huntsman, a thief, just a straight-up thief. I'm playing a berserker. Interestingly enough, Darren Green's escape slave is also a berserker. So, and, and then Che Webster was not able to attend the session, so we'll see how he converts his character over to Ash. I don't want to, you know, presume what kind of character, what class he'll pick. So it'll be interesting once he joins us to see what character class he picks. But as you may remember from, I talked about this previously, the idea here is the world's kind of like our world. You have an empire kind of like the Roman Empire there. And a new island has been found with ancient ruins on it. And there's been a push to explore this island. And instead of the empire doing it officially with expeditions, for whatever reason, maybe because of wars or maybe because of other reasons, they don't want to commit the legions to it. So they're kind of freelancing it out at the moment. So we are off to explore. And so we started the session. We, we did converted the characters and we launched into the game. We started the session in the port there on the edge. And so, so we get to the port and we, we end up in a tavern. And my character kind of wanted to, to buy additional weapon and get some money. So he challenged 
some another group of mercenaries had were in the tavern and they they were passing money around and they had just obviously found some these ancient coins out in the out in the forest in the jungle and and so they were kind of flush with money and, and so my character challenged them and we ended up doing a drinking game drink, drinking contest and my character put a short sword in and each of them put a couple gold pieces in and Darren's character put in a shield in, in the pot and, and we had this drinking contest which we used do, doing constitution feats and my character won the drinking contest and, and so he gathered the gold he gave Darren's berserker his shield back and he the next day went and bought a battle axe because i've got weapon specialization and battle axe weapon mastery and battle axe so he used it to buy battle axe he used one gold piece to to get a room for everybody for the night and then he kept the rest he's trying to hoard gold save gold up to buy the freedom of the sister during this time the our huntsman was going around talking to people, finding out rumors. So he, he heard about rumors of rumors of eight men to the north and treasure to the west. Carl's character is a thief. The thief very kindly offered to assist one of the drunk mercenaries back up to his room. And in the process, he lifted his purse and took some coins out of the purse. And when he got him up in, into the room, he went through the room looking for any evidence of you know, if they had any maps or any notes of where they'd gone to. And he kind of found an idea of where they'd gone to. So the next day when we set off after buying, you know, getting some rations and water, we, we kind of knew where we were going to the west. So we traveled through the, we spent a day traveling through the jungle. We made camp. It's fairly uneventful. The next day we came out to the, these ruins and there's like an aqueduct and some towers you know, all ancient, and, and, and we do know there was a so reportedly an ancient civilization here on this island at one point that predates the, the, the empire. So we kind of stayed in the, in the jungle while the thief snuck ahead and he climbed one of these towers and, and he got up in the tower and he found like a, a nest with like leaves and stuff kind of. Uh, set out and some stone tools and some more of these ancient gold coins. So he collects up the gold coins and the and whatnot. And while he was up there, a couple ape men came into the clearing out, out of the jungle. And the impetuous berserker that, that I am, we, we go into combat. I, I did a maneuver called throw and attack where I could throw the spear and still charge forward into attack. They were too far away to reach from that, that phase. We're using the standard combat rules out of Astonishing Swordsman Sorcerers of Hyperborea. So it's a two-phase combat where you declare your actions first. And um, so anyway, it charged forward through the sphere, the spear, my short spear. And, and then by the second phase, I was able to attack with the axe. Um, Darren's character charged forward with me. The... Huntsmen started sneaking through the jungle around to get behind them. And during phase one, the thief in the tower hid and to gain the ability to use backstab. In phase two, he was going to shoot a missile. So we get to phase two. So the spear I threw missed. Uh, eight, eight men were surprised that we attacked them, so they didn't act at all. The When we finished the charge in phase two, I swung with a battle axe but missed. Darren connected with his longsword and killed one of the eight men. Carl's missile attack killed the other one. So that took, took them out. And then we, Carl went to, there were some tight ropes, some ropes between the, the towers. He tried to tightrope walk across and failed his roll and he fell and took a little bit of damage falling. The towers weren't very high, but it was enough for him to get some bruises. And we kind of stopped the session at that point and got our XP and all, and we're going to pick up here in a couple weeks. So that was the inaugural session of, of this campaign, and we're definitely looking forward to doing it. Maybe, you know, we'll finish exploring these towers, get back to town, and maybe link back up with um, Chase's character at that point, which would be pretty cool. So that is my session recap for 
Arlen Walker's astonishing swordsman and sorcerer of Hyperborea game. I know the last few episodes I've been recommending other podcasts, and I'm going to keep that up because there's two great podcasts right now that are kind of bookends, maybe, to this whole discussion we, we had on Rule Zero. And I know you're sick of hearing about Rule Zero, but these are great podcasts, great discussions on it, and I think well worth your time listening to. So the first of these is, and these are in no particular order, but the first is Confessions of Wee Tim or Spooshy, and it's the episode that was released on the, see if I can get the date right, I believe the 9th of August. The title is Unexpected 5e Evaluation, New Gaming Horizons, and Rule Zero Freedom. And the Rule Zero talks about 40 minutes in the podcast. There's going to be a link in the show notes for these. So you'll be able to just go to the show notes and, and follow these. The other, that's by Rob or Minion of Confessions of We Tim Merspeci podcast. And so he kind of gives his thoughts on the, on the whole conversation and on the, the way the conversation finished out. And, and I think his thoughts are, are really good and well worth listening to because he gets into the idea that while, you know, rules are important, too many rules are actually trying to, not too many rules, trying to codify role-playing games, trying to codify an activity like a role-playing game too much can actually be harmful. So I, I think it's an interesting point of view that Rob brings, and I don't think it's wrong. And he's definitely not saying throwing shade on any of the participants here, but I think it's an interesting perspective that's worth worth listening to. The other one I'm going to mention is Gaming from the First Age, okay, done by, well, First Age. And this podcast actually came out on the 8th of August, and it's titled Zero Sum Game. And again, there'll be a, a link in the show notes. And he gives his thoughts on it, and I think his thoughts are really, also really well thought out, well worth listening to. And he, while he doesn't come down is as hard as as Rob does on the idea that you know codifying things could be harmful. What first stage comes comes out with is equally interesting because he discusses a, he kind of takes the whole argument not argument he takes the whole discussion and wraps it up nicely. So if you have heard the discussion, you could actually go to first stage's podcast. And really get the gist and the back and forth and a, a really good resolution to it. And he brings a, a, a kind of outsider view to it that I think is really well done. Plus, he points out, you know, the fact that fourth edition D&D actually is one of the better rule zero sentences and, and rule zero wordings of the D, different D&D editions. So I, I think this... You know, gaming the first age, this episode of his, is very worth your time to go listen to. I wasn't going to finish watching Masters of the Universe Revelation on Netflix, but a bunch of other, yeah, foot and mouth, a bunch of other podcasts have talked about it. I think the first one I heard talking about it was Biggest Geekus, or either Biggest Geekus or The Arcane Alienist, but they both talked about it with opposing points of view on it. And then Hindsightless had a great recent episode where Jules from NZ and Joe Richter discussed the show. Which, and one of the reasons it makes that episode so great is Jules didn't watch the 80s cartoon. So she came to this as a newcomer. I, I mean, she was aware of the Master Universe, but she came to this without all the background, you know, that we all, the rest of us have that watched the cartoon back in the day. So I do recommend, you know, those opinions be looked at. But I'm going to give you mine. And I'm not going to talk about the plot. I'm not going to give any spoilers at all, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, so the closest thing to a spoiler, I will say, is yes, in the first five episodes of the series, of a ten-episode series, the first five episodes, Tila is kind of your main character. She's oh, not in all the episodes, but she take, but for the majority of these first five episodes, she's the main character more than He-Man. He-Man's in the episodes, he's in the background a little bit more, he 
is more prominent in the in you know some episodes than others. He's still there, but Tila is more our central character in these first five episodes. So why am I emphasizing that? Because when Kevin Smith made the show, he made a ten episode series, and these are twenty five minute episodes. He made ten episodes with the intention that they would all get dropped at once, like Netflix does. And then Netflix decided, no, we're not going to do that. What we're going to do is show the first, we're going to break your 10 episode season one into five episodes, season one and two. So after Kevin Smith had made the show, 10 episodes, Netflix broke it into two five episode seasons. So you're only seeing half of Kevin Smith's vision here. You're not seeing the conclusion. You're not seeing the second half of the story. So be aware of that. So yes, He-Man's in it. No, he's not in as prominently. He doesn't have as much screen time as Teela. Okay, that's true. That's about all I'm going to say on that on those points as far as the plot goes. That doesn't bother me a bit because you know what? He-Man's kind of boring. All the other characters with their fun gimmicks are more interesting than He-Man. I like He-Man, but I despise Prince Adam. So him not being around doesn't bother me. Also, not a huge, huge fan of Orko because he's the obvious nod to kids, or was in the show. And Orko's handled better here than he was in the 80s cartoon. Definitely. I, I was exposed to Masters Universe by, by the toys before the cartoon ever came out. So I remember the mini-comics that came with the toys, and in those there was no Prince Adam. It was always just He-Man. He was a barbarian that a sorceress gave some artifacts to. Um, Prince Adam was added for the TV show, and I never liked that change. So, you know, it's not a big deal to me. That said, yes, the story covers some more grown-up themes, but to be honest, it doesn't cover them very well. The animation isn't really to my liking that much. The voice acting is superb. The voice actors do a great job. They have a great voice cast. No question about it. Will I watch the second five episodes? Sure, I'll watch it. I'm curious to see where it goes. And where it goes may alleviate some of the complaints for the people that don't like the first five. I doubt it, but it might. Um, all in all, it's fine. Honestly, all the controversy aside, it's it's fine. It I, I don't think it. The, the more grown-up issues it deals with, I don't think it does in-depth enough and, and well enough to really give it a, a a good clap on the back for doing it. It acknowledges something, and then it doesn't really deal with it. So maybe the next five episodes do. So, but that's kind of my thoughts on the Masters Universe cartoon, or Masters Universe Revelation on Netflix. It's fine. Great voice cast. Um, it, it's not the dumpster fire that everybody says it is, or I'm sorry, it's not the dumpster fire that some people say it is, in my opinion. Okay, but let's talk about Secret Identities just for a minute longer, not Masters of the Universe Secret Identities. Let's talk about where I think an alter ego is handled well, and that is the 1990s DC Animated Universe Batman the Animated Series. I think the way Kevin Conroy and Bruce Tim and all those guys handled that was perfect. So if you pay attention during that series, when nobody else is around, Bruce Wayne isn't there. Bruce Wayne is the alter ego in that series, not Batman. When they're in the Batcave, it doesn't matter if he's in the Batman suit or not. When they're in the Batcave and Batman's talking to Alfred, he's using the Batman voice. He's not using Bruce Wayne voice, even if he's not wearing the suit. Because Batman is the primary identity, and Bruce Wayne is the alternate identity. Bruce Wayne is the secret identity that he shows to the public and, you know, shows to people. But Batman is the dominant identity. So in that show, Kevin Conroy, when nobody's around, nobody else is around, you know, nobody that they need to hide the Batman identity from, he's using the Batman voice instead of the Bruce Wayne voice, which I think is great. Um, so I, I really like that take now the, of the Batman, of that character. Now, what I don't want to do is get into a deep psychological debate on 
the Batman because I think that kind of real world logic is irrelevant with a guy, a billionaire that's fighting crime, right? The whole logic is crazy anyway, so there's no reason to try to apply psychology to it. But if you are interested in psychology applied to the Batman, then they made a movie about it. It's called Batman Forever. It has Val Kilmer's Batman and Nicole Kidman as a psychologist. So you're you're definitely welcome to check that out. Okay, quick unboxing. I'm assuming this is part of the Scene Quest 3 stuff, but who knows what it is. Let's open it up. This is a big, um, you know, like a full-size magazine, white mailer. It's coming from Maryland of Severed Books. So let's see what's in here. We have, um, hmm, what do we have? Oh, awesome. Okay. So this is not, this is a Kickstarter. It is not a Kickstarter, a Zine Quest 3 Kickstarter, but it is a cool Kickstarter. This is the Tomb of the Bitchin' Camaro, a Dead Milkman RPG adventure by Andrew Irvin. And I also, with this, got the Tomb of the Pale Cow, which is the adventure, right? Oh, no, okay. So the Tomb of the Pale Cow is a bunch of NPCs. And, and each page is a, is a different, it's kind, of, it, it's kind of like a little bestiary with monsters. And it's got a, an illustration and a write-up of, of all the NPCs and different people that you're going to meet, which is really cool. Um, these are uh, glossy covers. Um, and the covers are kind of, well, the writing, so, so they're black with, they're kind of black and yellow. And well, there's also white and there's red. Yeah, so they're kind of colors. They're kind of monochromatic. The main adventure, the, the Tomb of the Bitch and Camaro book, the inside cover is the borough of the Owlbear, so it's a map. The back cover is a map of the lost tomb of the Bitch and Crimea. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll read you a little blurb here on the back, written by. Lawrence Schick, author of the White Plume Mountain Adventure. I'm here to share with you a nugget of wisdom from over 40 years in the game business. A game should be fun. This deranged module, The Lost Tomb of the Bitchin' Chimera, comes from my personal comes with my personal guarantee that not only will you survive it, because who could guarantee that? No. In fact, you will suffer. What I do guarantee is that you'll enjoy every minute. So, very cool. Um, this book is eh, 44, 45, 46. So it's like 48 pages, but to be honest, the back page is blank. The second back page, one side is blank. The other side has a, a compass with a little cow, the dead milkman cow sticking out. Um, the pages 43 and 44, the OGL. Page 42 is acknowledgments. Um, so yeah, Effectively, you get pages, not counting the contents and all. So page 5 to 41 are the actual game. Um, and that's okay. There's, wow, appendix A through I, plenty of appendixes in here. So not counting those. Now, those appendixes are rumors and gossip, NPCs, um, a bunch of other stuff, in a character sheet, some other stuff that I don't want to ruin if you ever play in this game. If people want to play this without reading it, reach out to me, and I will be happy to run it for you. Um, but, yeah, very cool. Um, lots of art in here. So, really, there's, honestly, there's maybe 20 pages of adventure here. Um, looking at all this art, that's just a guesstimate on my part, but that's okay. Um, you, you know, the, part of this is the gimmick. Wow. There's a lot of art in here. There's maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe 20 pages. There's 15 to 20 pages of game in here. Um, now, that said, a lot of this art are things you use during the game. So, I mean, they definitely add game value. But but as far as text, there's like 15 to 20 pages worth of text, maybe. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm actually on my way out the door. So, I'm not going to be able to do a too in-depth of a write-up or reading here. And I wouldn't want to because, again, there's an adventure, and I don't want to ruin an adventure for you guys. But 
Yeah, Tomb of the Victory Chimera. Chimera. How do you say it, folks? Let me know. Um, but very cool. Of course, it's based on roughly on the Dead Milkmen. And if you don't know who the Dead Milkmen are, then I refer you to YouTube, a music service of your choice, or your local record store. They used to have all these as L all their albums as LPs. Um, and of course, Wikipedia. Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Well, maybe it's your auntie or a joke by your spouse, but the operator's screaming is coming from inside the house. But the VTT is there to be as complicated or as simple as you need it to be. Uh, Albert Rodeo is a really good example of being a simple VTT. Uh, you can use the VTT just to share images if you need to or to keep track of dice rolls. It doesn't need to be complex maps. Um, that feel of production, I think, comes from watching actual play streams or YouTube videos and feeling like you have to live up to that and the player's expectations for that. But really, it can be as simple as just drawing on a battle map like you would in, in real life. Um, so anyway, uh, that's just my thought on VTTs with regards to how Joe was mentioning it. it kind of, that popped in my head. Anyway, keep up the great work. Talk to you again soon. Hey, Jason. Kevin Cullingham from the Red Caps Podcast. Was just listening to your big, long uh, catch-up episode from Sunday. Had a couple quick questions for you. Uh, question number one. You listed some very specific times and when you're releasing it. I think it was like one twenty-three and 12.34. Is it just for the pun of the one, two, three and the one, two, three, four? Or is it a specific reason that you use those times? I'm just curious. I'm guessing it's the pun, but wanted to ask. Um, second comment was more directed at Joe um, when he was talking about VTTs. Um, I've seen that kind of come as like a paralysis for some DMs where they, because of the VTT experience and what you've seen people play streaming online, um, it becomes a production and it makes it feel like you have to do so much preparation for the maps and the graphics. There'll be part two. So Kevin, as far as the times I'm releasing the podcasts, yeah, it's just more of a pun thing. I, I'd like to tell you it's some kind of deep, you, you know, numerical secret, secret code, um, like something out of the cabal or something like that, but that's not the case. To be honest, when I was, you know, you look at the clock and you see the one, two, three, four, and the other combination there that works. Well, there's two other combinations that work if you want all four numbers to be in a row, unless you're doing zero, 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 zero for, you know, like midnight on 24 hour time. And that's the, you know, one twenty three a.m. and 12.34 p.m. or a.m. would work. And then the other one that works, of course, using 24 hour time is. 23.45 or, or 11.45 at p.m. But now it's... So the reason the spacing of the podcasts is I wanted to put out two a week. And so what's the optimal spacing for two a week? Well, it's one every three and a half days. So obviously one one needs to come out. It doesn't have to be midnight and noon, but effectively you're, you know, one that you need to put that in there. And, and so that's kind of where I did that. So it's, yeah, there's no deep secret um, me Illuminati type meaning to it. But if somebody wants to attribute that to it, I'm fine with that. VTTs, I am quite with you on that. I've used Albert Rodeo actually, and it works pretty well. Uh, when we were doing our game of Against the Dark Master, I used Albert Rodeo to run the combats in that, and it worked fine. I, but that's why I like using something like Zoom, because you can see the players. You can share images, you can share music. I've thrown PowerPoint up in Zoom, sharing my screen, and used that as a makeshift VTT in the past. Um, the advantage of Albert Rodeo, of course, is you can is that players can roll their own dice there on the screen, where otherwise, if I'm using Zoom, everybody's rolling their dice at home, which I like and a lot of players like. But interesting enough, I found some players that do not want to roll dice at home. They really want to roll electronically so everybody sees that role and they really prefer that so i guess it depends on your party if you have or your 
yeah, your, um, you know, your group. If you have people that really, I'm out here playing ball with the dog, so that's why I'm huffing and puffing. But if everybody's cool with rolling dice at home, I'm all for that. If people prefer to see the dice on the screen, then Albert Radio would, would be the way, better way to go, I guess. But uh, the problem with that is with VTTs, often VTTs, the audio and visual for the call doesn't work very well. So then you end up with two different screens, you know, or two different computers or different windows open and where just using Zoom for everything, I don't have to worry about that. And I can just have one thing open and look at one thing on my, on my computer. And since I don't have multiple screens, if I'm running something like if we're playing a game and using Zoom or Google Meet and then using Roll20, I end up borrowing my wife's laptop a lot of times and using one laptop for the meeting conference software, one laptop for the VTT, or I'll use a phone. So I'll have the Roll20 open on the laptop and I'll have the, the meeting software open on the phone. But if I'm doing everything in Zoom, I don't have to do that. So maybe that's just me and my technological limitations. Hey, Jason, I guess Amy and I have that perverse sense of humor because we enjoyed Suicide Squad, the reboot, or I don't know if it's called Suicide Squad 2 or whatever. And I liked, uh, I liked the characters, the principles who they changed out. Um, I do like what Margot Robbie does and how she plays Harley Quinn. So it, it's a pretty enjoyable movie. And it's got some dark humor, which I enjoy. And from different places, too. It's, uh, it's shocking. Well, not shocking. Well, I guess somewhat shocking, but surprising where some of the humor comes from which I thought was, was good. It's a good, uh, I guess, is it James Gunn who did this? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know who wrote it or whoever, but uh, it was enjoyable, and I had fun watching it. So, uh, good stuff. Hey, Carl, I'm glad you and Amy liked the movie as well. The new movie, indeed by James Gunn, is The Suicide Squad, where the 2016 movie by David Ayers is just Suicide Squad. Yeah, I think that... The Suicide Squad is very well done. Like I say, it's maybe a little bit long. Um, I don't mean perverse like you're a bad person to have that sense of humor. But you have to admit, some of the things in the movie are more of a, a dark sense of humor, right? Um, Margot Robbie's casting as Harley Quinn is great. She is one of the best castings of the new DC Extended Universe, the new movies. And, and to be honest, the other... Uh, of course, Idris Elba's great. And most of the actors in here are great, but I think the other standout person, and maybe kind of the shocker, is how much John Cena has grown as an actor. If you think of John Cena's early roles as an actor, I'm not talking about wrestling, I'm talking about in real movies, he was a real stinker, he was really wooden. And But now, here is Peacemaker, John Cena is great. He's He's got a good sense of humor, he has good comedic timing, He he does a great job. There's, not spoiling anything, there's a scene where John Cena's character and Idris Elba's character are trying to one-up each other that's just comedic gold. And just from the way those two actors play, it is great. So, yeah, John Cena's really grown. And all in all, it's a, you know, if, like I say, you have a little darker sense of humor, it's great, great movie. But it, but it is on the violent side and on the dark side. So, but, yeah, ex- excellent, excellent. So, let's move on. Up next, Carl Rodriguez, husband of Amy, Geomologist Presents host, and all-around Game Master extraordinaire, is going to talk to us on his thoughts of a good Game Master. Hey, Jason, Joe Richter is absolutely right. And I agree with him that it is quite petty for a GM to expect a player to remember something that was mentioned briefly two weeks ago in real time that the player got in a little two, three-second blurb that their player is supposed to remember. And yes, I do have my pet peeves about gaming, but I think I also am picky about GMs, and that's why I play with the GMs that I play with right now, because I enjoy their GMing style and what they do. And I think Joe and I would agree that we are player, players' GMs. We like to help players out uh, 
And I think that's what I appreciate. And a good example of a like player's GM is something that I try to do, especially because I try to introduce new players to the game and they're players that are f not familiar with the particular rules of the game. So I try to encourage them and remind them of the rules or things that they might have overlooked. For example, last night in Deadlands, I reminded the players that they have conviction, which is an extra d6 they can roll to add to the roll that they have made already uh, in the game. And they can keep that conviction going with bennies, but it's an extra d6, and the d that d6 can ace also. So you can get some really good rolls if you need it. And uh, I reminded the players of that because they got conviction like two adventures ago and had maybe had not remembered it. It's the same thing, you know, with the bardic inspiration. I, I remind players, I know Kevin reminded the players that, hey, you have this bardic inspiration you can call upon. So I think that's what a good GM does. A good GM helps the players along in the world and through the story because they realize that the players are the stars of the show or else you wouldn't be playing, right? I mean, it's not about the world and the NPCs and what goes on and random rolling of dice and funny haha, -ha, we're going to kill all the players arbitrarily. It's let's explore this narrative together. And I think Joe and I are in agreement with that. Hey, I wanted to thank you, Jason, and others from the Audio Dungeon Discord, especially the ones that we play with recently, and the ones that have made uh, my wife, Amy, feel welcome. And it's funny that you are calling my podcast Amy's Husband. She remarked that to our friends last night, and it's her podcast, and I'm just a special guest. And that's great, because it does make her feel part of the group and part of the gang. And before I felt that she or she has shared with me that she's been felt she has felt marginalized by my previous groups because they don't let her be her and i think she keeps coming back to want to play with you guys and propose that we play twilight 2000 more and more or other games because she feels part of the group carl i'm glad that you see the you know amy's husband thing is is what it's meant to be you, to be honest, you, you know, that was never a joke at your expense. It was always meant to kind of make her laugh. I am so happy that I've had a chance to play with Amy and that she's been in our Twilight 2000 game. And I hope that I get to play in other games with her. Amy brings such an energy to the game. You know, she she fearlessly dives into doing a voice and doing what she thinks her character would do not because it would be helpful to the party per se, but because it's what that character would do. And I think that's great. I think the way she's approaching role-playing is, I, I mean, I wish all the players would approach it that way. I'm not very good at voices by any means, so I kind of feel I let, let you guys down sometimes when I don't, you know, go into a voice. But she really, you, you know, when she's playing Kasha in Twilight 2000, She's thinking like Kasha, and she's doing the things that she believes Kasha would do. Not necessarily, well, tactically, this is the best thing to do. No, she's doing, well, no, Kasha would do this, which is great. I love that, and I love that she's not afraid to, you know, inhabit that character for us. So, yeah, I, I would play in any game with Amy, and I hope I get to play in other games with her. So thank you so much for, you know, bringing her in. You know, it's, you know, it's been really great playing with her. Next series of calls is from Daniel Norton of the Bandits Keep podcast, YouTube channel, and actual play YouTube channel. And he is going to defend the need for note-taking a little bit from the callers of last episode. And then he also is going to talk about the potential downfalls of VTTs, which Daniel's experiences with VTTs mirror my own. Now, that's not to say all VTTs in all situations are bad, and Daniel, make sure to point that out. And when I played in Joe Richter's Pathfinder game, I was engaged, and the VTT helped because of the tactical nature of that game. But in general, I find that Daniel's observations about VTTs do mirror what I've seen. So let's listen to Daniel.
Hey Jason, Daniel from Man's Keep, kind of calling in about the uh, taking notes and such. Uh, you know, it's interesting just listening to the call-ins. Uh, one thing that really wasn't thought out or, or said in these that I didn't catch anyways, except maybe by Carl, kind of <laughs> roundaboutly, is that taking notes is also just a way to show respect for the game. You know, the GM, unless they're rolling this thing up randomly or picking it up off the top of their head as they go, has spent time and effort to create this game. If you are on your phone texting your girlfriend or boyfriend, or you are, you know, focusing so much on like what you're going to do tomorrow night and not paying attention to the game and you're not taking notes, then that's kind of showing disrespect to the GM. So I think there is that. And of course, I'm not saying every time somebody forgets an NPC's name, that's what's happening. But I do think that uh, there is a certain level of respect that maybe I feel when I when people remember the story or they know what's going on, or they engage in it more directly than me having to keep repeating things like, oh yeah, this is the dude. Wow, I had to call in another, another one because Joe's uh, talk about virtual tabletops. He said it helps keep the players engaged. Wow, uh, that's not been my experience. Well, no, it keeps them engaged in the wrong thing. Uh, I have no problem keeping my players engaged in the story without a virtual tabletop. I think when I have a virtual tabletop, they're spending time mussing around with uh, moving their pieces around and looking at the map and trying to figure all that stuff out. I think it's more hassle than it's worth, personally. But, uh, I mean, again, different type play types. I'm not playing D&D. &D. Oh, no, I am playing D&D. &D. Oh, and so is Joe, because he plays Pathfinder. Because it's all D&D, &D, right? But, no, you're kidding, of course. Maybe in a more tactical game, a, a virtual tabletop uh, adds that kind of engagement. But I found that minis and virtual tabletops just have not added to story engagement. In my case, typically people take longer with their turns, which makes other players less engaged. That's been my experience, but, you know, every table's a little bit different, I guess. Oh, I think Arlen makes a really good point there with the two towers. Well, at least about dwarves and people that play dwarves. Yeah, that's pretty much how people play dwarves. Now, do they play dwarves like that because they saw the two towers and thinks it, think it's funny to make burpee sounds and just attack things? Or do the two towers make dwarves like that because that's the player the way players are? That's the real question. I don't know. I don't play dwarves. So I guess people out there that play dwarves, let me know why you play in that peculiar fashion of, you know what I'm talking about. Sorry, Jason, open up a can of worms again. Uh, I will wait for the fallout. Well, dear listeners, what do you think? Daniel's issued a dwarvish challenge, a challenge for dwarves, or at least the players of dwarves. And I, for one, am interested to see what people have to say in response to Daniel's challenge. So send in those calls, folks. Well, folks, we've come to the point in the podcast where I'm going to say thank you. I want to thank TJ Drennan for the wonderful music. I want to thank Ray Otis for the wonderful coffee cup clip art that I used. I want to thank everybody that called into this episode and helped make it such a great episode, providing me great content to bounce off of. And especially I want to thank you, the listener, you know, for hanging out with me. And you only have 24 hours each day. And the fact that you decide to spend some of it with me, I really appreciate. So that's all the RPG content I have today. There is one more segment, and it's the Vulcan Diaries. I'm going to respond to calls that I played last episode from Kevin of the Raycast podcast and Daniel of Bandit's Keep podcast. Also... I'm going to reference a conversation I had offline with Rayo's the Plundergrounds. And effectively, this segment of Vulcan Diaries is going to be about motorcycles and technology and escapism. So if you're interested in that, you know, hang out with me. If not, then thank you for tuning in, and I'll catch you next time. Jason from the future here. Just want to do a correction. In the upcoming segment, I talk about a podcast review of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and I mention that it's on a podcast called The Noble Art of Running Away, and that is done by Sass the Rope. But it's actually on his other podcast, which is called Bibliophile Adventures, where he posts as Michael from Germany. So I've got a link to that podcast in the show notes. Welcome back to the Vulcan Diaries. Today I'm going to get into some ground touched by Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Person. Now, there's another podcast that I'll link 
in the show notes that does a review of this book. And that is The Noble Art of Running Away. And done by, I cannot pronounce his name. Uh, I, I'm sorry. But anyhow, there's a link to his book review of this book. But I'm only going to tangentially touch touch on some of the subjects in the book. I mention it more of a kind of a touchstone than really in having much to do with the conversation. Ray Otis, but I recently was talking to Ray Otis after we recorded a joint podcast, and he had brought that book up in part of the conversation, so that's kind of why I mentioned it. Last episode, there were calls from Kevin and Daniel on a segment I did previously, Vulcan Diaries, where I talked about what you can't do on the motorcycle and technological limitations. And this included everything from, you know, eating and drinking while you're riding to painting your toenails to, I don't know, texting and taking phone calls and listening to podcasts and calling into anchor podcasts. Now, some of these things can be corrected by technology. You can get Bluetooth speakers in your helmet. You can buy helmets with built-in Bluetooth or you can add Bluetooth to existing helmets. So doing the phone calls and, and all that is possible. As far as GPS goes, yeah, now you can put GPS on a bike. You can buy dedicated units. Some bikes like Triumph on some of their motorcycles has GPS that comes on the motorcycle, onboard GPS. And I'm going to come back to that here in a minute. The idea of technology building the bike. But there's ways to do a lot of these things. You can actually get cup holders for motorcycles. Now, cup holder on your, you know, Suzuki Hayabusa might not make a whole lot of sense. But a cup holder on your cruiser bike might, right? Especially your big touring bike, like your Goldwing or your um, Harley Roadkin. Honestly, the problem isn't so much that the bike limits you from doing these things. The problem is, do I want to do these things on my bike? Why do I have a bike? And what do I want out of it? That's kind of the question. Is the motorcycle just part of the midlife crisis? You know, is it just the, um, not after, the, the manifestation of the midlife crisis? Yeah, partially. I, I think that, I think honestly, that's part of it. Is it an itch I wanted to re-scratch? You know, I had a motorcycle as my new vehicle back in the mid-90s, 25 years ago. So it's nice to, it's something I've always wanted to revisit. So, you know, that kind of goes in that like crisis thing, right? I don't know. The, the main impetus towards getting the bike, and I've talked about bikes for years, and my wife has always kind of poo-pooed it. Being a nurse, you know, she sees the, the dangers of motorcycles. And, and I would lie to you if I didn't tell you that I understand the dangers of motorcycles. I, I do. It doesn't mean I don't want one, and, and I end up getting one, but I, I do recognize the dangers inherent in motorcycle riding, especially today in a world where people are texting and driving and playing on their smartphones and everything else. With drivers and cars being more distracted than ever, riding a motorcycle on the public highway is more dangerous than ever. And I don't think there's any question about that. But the reason the quote-unquote logical reason I bought the bike was because I was having some mechanical issues in my van that I happen to be recording this in right now. So any background noise you hear is me riding in the van recording this. But I was having some mechanical issues in the van, and I want to make the van last longer because I really don't want to spend the money on a new vehicle right now. So I sold the wife on the idea, you know, motorcycles get good gas mileage. Motorcycles are inexpensive compared to cars. In Virginia, the weather is such that I can ride a motorcycle, you know, 80% of the time. Even in the winter, I can put on a, you know, an insulated suit. And if it's not below freezing, if there's not patches of black ice and stuff out there, I, I can still ride the bike. Obviously, in a snowstorm or, you know, super duper downpour, I'm not going to want to ride the bike. But 80% of the time or so, I can ride the bike to work. And sh- you know, I'd say cheaper maintenance, better gas mileage, cheaper buying cost, initial cost of the vehicle. 
So those are the logical reasons I got the bike. And I have been using it to commute to work and, and it's been going well. I, I enjoy riding the bike initially. You know, if you listen to the early episodes of Vulcan Diary, I'm kind of, eh, I'm not enjoying this, but I'm going to make it work because my wife would kill me if we spent this money and I don't, and I say I don't want to do it. But I've warmed back up to it. But part of the initial problem was I bought a cruiser-style bike with four foot pegs. where So basically, you're sitting there and your feet are ahead of you, kind of like you're in a lounge chair with the, I mean, in a recliner with, with, the, with the feet up, where all the bikes I've ever ridden in the past, your feet are below you or behind you. You're either what's called a standard bike or a, you know, crotch rock, a sport bike. So it was a totally different style bike in, in the foot positioning and all was way different, but I've gotten used to it and I, and I'm enjoying it. So I actually do enjoy riding the bike to work. I, no problems. I've been doing it today. I've got some stuff going on that I, I need to take the band off. So the question being now, what technology do I want to add to the bike? Because you can add all kinds of stuff. I can mount my cell phone on the handlebars. I've seen people on YouTube, you can get apps and stuff where you can put GPS and all the stuff on your phone. I've seen where somebody uses a, a large smartphone at basically as their dashboard effectively. It's got everything on there. Instead of putting a dash on, they did a modification to the bike and they're just using the cell phone as a dash. And to be honest, the the GPS speedometer is arguably more accurate than the speedometer on the bike. In fact, I think most people would agree it is more accurate than the bike. So when you see actual actual speed test bikes, they tend to use GPS and not the bike's instruments because the motorcycle speedometers are not as accurate as an actual GPS. You might find that's the case in your car as well. But you can add all kinds of wonderful technology to the bike. But part of the bike and part of the midlife crisis part of this is that step back to the old times. You know, when I was growing up and when I first went in the Army back, you know, many years ago, we used to work on cars. This is back before cars were cash for clunkers and back before, well, this, this is before the Clinton years, right? And and back then you could get muscle cars for fair, muscle cars were fairly abundant and fairly cheap. And I went through a ton of cars. You know, I've had Formula Firebirds and, you know, I had a 68 Camaro, I had a 65 Falcon, I had, I had all kinds of stuff. And the thing about those cars were you would work on them and it, you know, and, and you were expected to work on your own car. Well, nowadays you're not expected to work on your car. You know, my son's Chrysler 200, you have to drop the bumper to change the headlight. Well, what kind of crap is that? Cars these days are, you know, with my Plymouth trail duster, I had a, I don't know what it was, 77, 78 Plymouth trail duster with a slant six in there great engine. And I could sit inside the engine compartment. I could sit on the wheel well and change the spark plugs, that thing. You know, where nowadays you got to freaking jack an engine up to change spark plugs. You, you know, effectively cars are designed these days where you've got to take them to the shop to do things, right? So that, that joy of working on the car and that kind of zen of doing your own maintenance isn't there anymore with cars. Motorcycles, it's still there whether you want it or not, you know, with a motorcycle, you're expected, you know, you don't have to change your own oil, but with a motorcycle, you need to check your oil like every week. You need to check your antifreeze every week. You need to be, check your tire pressure weekly, right? You need to check your chain. You're expected every four or 500 miles, if you have a chain drive bike to clean that chain and lube it, you, you know, so you have maintenance that you need to do as a bike owner. You're not going to take to the shop to do this stuff. You need to be doing this on your own. And it's not antifreeze like like with a car where you look at it, pop a cap, and pour antifreeze in. Like on my Vulcan, I've got to take two bolts out. I've got to take a bolt out, take a body panel off, take another bolt out, remove another bracket before I can even get to the, you know, where I add antifreeze. And it's not a, a huge hurdle. This isn't mechanically difficult to where somebody can't do it, but it's more hands-on than a car is, which is great. And that's part of the part of the mystique of a motorcycle is that hands-on and is that doing that kind of stuff. 
and if you start adding technology to it, you, you start to get away from that. So I don't know that I want to add the technology. I like the pure experience of just riding down the road. I mean, I put in earplugs, you know, to protect my hearing. But I kind of like not having music and not ha- not having to worry about the phone. I, you know, when I'm driving, you know, I might get phone calls from work or I might get phone calls from family or I get notifications. And and I like the idea while I'm riding the bike. I just ignore that because I'm not going to I'm not going to talk to it, talk, you know, answer the phone on the bike. So I don't have to worry about it. I miss listening to podcasts when I commute. But and typically when I call into shows, it's immediately after hearing that segment or that show. So I like to do that right away, often in the car, and I miss being able to do that. But to be honest, I like the pure experience of just riding and not having those modern interferences. And I think that's a reason I wouldn't want one of these bikes, modern bikes, that has all these all this technology built in. GPS, eh, I guess it's okay. Of course, the GPS, then now, you know, every couple of years, you need to upload a new map program to it, right? You need to update the maps. You know, they have bikes now that have riding modes. And these, like, cars have riding modes. So a lot of bikes now have a rain mode, you know, a, a road mode, a sport mode. Some so You have dual sport bikes, which are meant to be both used on the road and off-road, like a dirt bike. And these dual sport bikes have riding modes on them, you know, off-road mode, on-road mode. Why would you not use the riding mode that gives you the most power all the time, the best performance all the time? Rain mode, so it makes your bike less good. It's crazy to me. I I don't want modes on my bike. I don't want big computer GPU, you know, big computers on my bike where that's something else to go wrong that I can't fix. That's crazy to me. It's like cars. You know, I can put my car in eco mode or I can put it in sport mode. How many people, how many of my listeners have cars that have modes? And of those of you that have them, how often do you switch modes, right? If you have a four, like a real four-wheel drive vehicle, do you switch from two-wheel to four-wheel? Sure you do sometimes. But, I mean, how often do you even do that, right? Unless you're, you know, big into off-roading. But how often do you guys switch in your driving modes in your cars? That Maybe I'm just old, but that blows my mind. Why would you do that? And on a motorcycle, come on, that's crazy. You know, and and I don't know, I've seen people talk about, well, that way you can buy a bigger bike. You buy the Rebel 1100 and you put it in rain mode. And once you're, once you've ridden in rain mode for six months, then you're ready to step up to the next mode. Nobody's going to do that. I mean, I mean, that's nuts. So yeah, I, I like bikes as pure experience. I, honestly, I know what a pain in the butt Kickstarters and carburetors are. I've rebuilt carburetors and messed carburetors and cars before. And I understand that. But so the fact my bike's fuel injected doesn't break my heart. Fuel injection is easier. Um, without a doubt, fuel injection's easier. And, and electric starts are easier than Kickstarters, right? But I'm actually at the point I would be okay with a carbureted, kickstarted motorcycle just because I'm kind of right now embracing that experience. Now, down the road, will I add Bluetooth to a helmet? Probably. Um, Down the road, I could see myself having a quote-unquote modern bike with that stuff and having a project bike that has like a carburetor and a Kickstarter and all that stuff. Um, Buy an old 70s bike and, you know, refurbish it. Buy an old Harley Sportster or something maybe just because parts are everywhere. Um, you know, the Harley Sportsters, the Glock 19 or the Air 15 of the, of the motorcycle world, right? There's so many parts out there for it. So you can do so much with it. So possibly I'll end up getting something like that down the road. But for right now, I'm just enjoying the experience, the zen of riding the motorcycle. And I don't think I want technology to intrude in that any more than it has to. And I'm on a limited time budget here, right? I only have a limited time. And, and and I will say this to anybody that's still listening. If you don't have your dream car, if you don't if you have a project car or bike that you've wanted, you need to go out there and get it now. Because the electric vehicles are coming. And here soon, 
overseas quicker than here in the U.S. But you guys over across the pond, you know, in 20 years, you're not going to be able to have gas vehicles. They're not going to let you register at all, probably. You know what I mean? Maybe on a farm or something, but you're pretty much going to be stuck with electric vehicles. So if you have internal combustion engine vehicles that you've wanted, that you enjoy tinkering with, you need to get out there and get them. And the same thing here in the States. I think gas is going to be here a little bit longer in the States just because logistically, I don't think we're going to have the infrastructure here in time. But if you have something like this you want to play with, now's the time to get it. Because Well, the time to get it was a couple decades ago. But now you're on the deadline here because the, the governments are making a switch to fully to electric. I have zero issue with electric vehicles, but I don't think our infrastructure is there for it. And I think there are big logistic issues with it. I, I think there are problems with what do you do with all these batteries? Because my understanding is you can't recycle these batteries. You know, what's effectively they're treated like um, they're hazmat, right? So I don't know. I, I'm not against electric vehicles. Electric vehicles performance wise, the mileage or the, you know, the range isn't that great. But electric vehicles actually are, super, you know, electric vehicle beat a supercar, you know. Electric motorcycles would beat your biggest, best turbocharged motorcycle. You know, electric motorcycle, can, you know, the acceleration, the torque and electric engine you put out is amazing. I don't know if torque is technically the right word, but, you know, your, your acceleration electric motorcycle is incredible. I, I've got nothing. I would love to have an electric motorcycle, and I'd buy one now if it had the range. But there's no electric motorcycle in the market that has enough range for me to go to work and back without recharging it in between. So that that's the honest truth. I can't buy an electric motorcycle that would let me do my commute without it being charged while I'm at work. And where I work, there's nowhere to charge it. So it is not possible for me to have electric motorcycles a commuter vehicle right now. When the technology's there, I'd be happy to get it, really. But that that doesn't take away from the same quality of working on your bike and having the bike. And so I think right now, Kevin, I know I can add technology to my bike, but I don't want to because I'm enjoying the Zen properties of it. Um, and, and I'm enjoying that get back to nature, not nature, but get back to more simplicity. Like Daniel mentioned his call that he doesn't use the GPS a lot now because he found himself dependent on it. How often do we find ourselves dependent on technology? Remember when we were growing up or when we were in our 20s, those of you that are old like me, and you knew all the phone numbers? Remember where you memorize, you had dozens or, or dozen or however many phone numbers memorized? How many phone numbers do you have memorized now? I know my work number. I know my wife's phone number, her cell phone number. I know, I know my mom's cell phone number. I know my house number. And I think those are all the numbers I can tell you off the top of my head. <laughs> I, I know a few numbers at work, actually. But but honestly, I couldn't tell you my work cell phone number. I can tell you my personal cell phone number. But point being, we rely on our smartphones to, to put, we put those phone numbers in there. And we don't know the phone numbers like we used to. You know, it used to be we memorized all this stuff. And same thing with GPS, right? These days, we plug an address in GPS and go. Right. So, and, and I kind of want to get away from that for a bit. So that, so I'm going to keep my motorcycle technology free as possible. I'm not going to take technology off it, but you know, like the electric start and the fuel injection. But I'm not going to add any new tech to my motorcycle. And I'm very possibly going to get another motorcycle at some point that is carbureted and kickstarted, just, just because. And then after a while. The kickstart will piss me off and I'll put electric start on that. But, you know, I, I, I do like the, <laughs> the option. So anyhow, and, and then if I'm still riding and driving at the point that electric vehicles are, are already option, then I'll go that route. And I do think the range will get better with electric vehicles. But right now, they're just not like for me, an electric vehicle is not realistic because I do a 120 mile daily commute. You know, and in America, the infrastructure is not here. Once the infrastructure is here, once they solve that and it's going to happen, you know, 
or, you know, our great love affair with the road and our traveling is going to be curtailed and people are going to go back to the old days where you, you just stay in your little communities because you're stuck with these electric vehicles. And that's going to be sad too, but I guess it's easier to control your subjects when they can't travel freely. I don't know. Anyway, that's all I have for Motorcycle Diaries today, Vulcan Diaries. I hope you guys are doing okay. Wow. I just looked at my phone. I've talked for 20 minutes. Holy crap. Well, I'm glad I told everybody else to hop off. <laughs> if anybody stayed through this, I'd be interested in your thoughts. Sorry for the, the long verbal diatribe I gave you guys, but I'm, I'm glad that this podcast lets me do that. So I'm going to sign off now. I'll talk to you this weekend. Take care. Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Maybe it's your auntie or a joke about your spouse, but the operator's screaming it's coming from inside the house. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Well, the audience is pretty sure he took a pretty head, and the only question left is if I fail to shoot him dead. Bring on the gold, bring on the gold. I want some more, bring on the gold. Well, your butcher is a dustman, and your moil is quite a tipper, and I'm assuming that your partner back there in the wood chipper. Don't look away. And the world has gone to hell We're living for the dying And we're dying for the train wreck